Hello. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. My family and I got away to the beach house this weekend, and it was the first time that the five of us had been in one space for a concentrated time in probably three or four weeks. So it was awesome to be together. We had a lot of fun, and now I'm super happy to be on the phone with you. How about you? That's awesome. I'm doing really good. I got to light off uh, my first fireworks this weekend. As of recording, this last weekend was the 4th of July weekend, and I have never lived in a place where I could light fireworks off before. So I lit off fireworks for the very first time. That's great. And I assume you did so COVID-free? Yes, I am COVID-free. I had to quarantine for one extra day, and then I wore a mask for five days after that, uh, kind of just following the basic COVID protocols that the CDC puts out. And uh, yes, I was so excited to take that mask off. Oh, I hate masks. But, <laughs> right. but I tell you what, it works. My wife did not get COVID, so that's a win. That's impressive. Right? Anyway, I was calling because uh, I finished a book that you recommended to me, and I wanted to talk about it. Uh, I finally am done with Managing Leadership Anxiety by Steve Cuss. I have only been done with this for about a week, and I literally have already recommended it to like three different people at my church. It has already gone on my top five books on leadership that have ever been written, I loved it, and I am really hoping to take some time to talk with you about it today. I'm so excited to talk about this. I mean, clearly, I liked it and recommended it to you. So yes, it was actually an assigned book for one of my classes, a class that I actually really loved. There was a lot of really good assigned reading for that class. It was all about kind of the emotional life of a leader so that we pay attention to the ways in which we show up for people and show up in our leadership. And this book is a prime example of that. So I'm excited to talk about this book. I feel like it has great content, but then a lot of good personal application as well. So I feel like this is going to be a really good dance between like book review and introspective life comments. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the, in the, the leadership space. Because one of the things I've noticed over the years about leadership is that it both puts some emotional and mental extra pressure on you. It also puts some extra spiritual pressure on you. And as a result of that, I have often said that uh, leadership is one of the tools that God uses to bring out the brokenness in us. And I feel like mm. cuss digs into that thought and diagnoses better than I ever have why that is and then what to do about it. I feel like I got to have a conversation with him because he was building on my thoughts and then I was just so excited with what he had to say. Yeah. And I felt like he did it in such a vulnerable way because he also was sharing stories from his life that helped illustrate what he was talking about. 
and his own personal growth and journey. I thought it was a vulnerable book and a very real book. I think there was there were a number of times where he said something to the effect of, I'm not proud of it, but that was still a very real thought or a very real prayer that I had in that moment that I didn't even know I was having. I just needed to learn to be aware of how I was showing up, even if I'm not proud of it. At least if I know, then I can consciously like recognize the thought and set it aside and do the spiritual work needed to live in a different direction than my initial thought. Yeah. Yeah. So let me jump in on, on that. Tell me some of your big takeaways from the book. Yeah, I think one of my main takeaways from this book is this idea of knowing yourself in order to be more present for somebody else. And the idea that he really worked with throughout the whole book is it's not enough to know yourself, though it is the only worthy starting point. But you have to take that knowledge of yourself and learn, therefore, how to set yourself aside, if you will, in order to be more present for somebody else. And so he really digs deep into how you show up. What do you bring into a leadership encounter that is bubbling underneath the surface that you need to be aware of so that you can consciously set those emotions, those thoughts, those fears, those whatever they are aside and literally be more present to what somebody else needs from you in that moment? That to me, I think is the overarching point of the book. And he does it in such a phenomenal way. But it, that's my main takeaway is I don't need to just know myself. I need to know myself and then take the appropriate action in order to be a more present, more engaged, more responsive leader. Mm, I love that. So, you know, I've been listening to Cuss on his podcast. He has been having this ongoing conversation with between he and Ruth Haley Barton. And oh, dang. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh. It's just amazing. It's this seven hour conversation that they record between the two of them oh. talking about this stuff. It's just breathtaking. But he does something to Ruth Haley Barton that I am going to, if it's okay for him to do, I'm going to steal it and I'm going to do it. Uh, and that is to ask for specifics. So I think you're absolutely right. Like his main idea of the book is this idea of being aware of what's going on in me so that I can be more present. And he has this great, what's his language for this? Calm, aware, and present. That's his phrase. So that I can be more mm. calm, aware, and present in moments when I'm leading. Can you think of an example where you work, where a moment where being more self-aware would have been helpful? So I'm going to take a leadership example from an area outside of work. I was new to a leadership role. And as I came onto this team as its leader, I was given some information about another member of the team that was meant to be helpful. It was meant to give me some information that I could use to better engage with this person and better establish some good working ground with this person. That information was 
uncomfortable for me to have received. And it made me interact with this individual in an uncomfortable way. I used it as, uh, oh, I need to be on my guard. I need to be defensive. I need to watch out for how this person might respond to me. So I threw up a bunch of walls and Mm. defense mechanisms, and I was very cautious in the way that I interacted with this team member. And that was noticed by this team member. And there came a day when this team member came to me and said, I don't really know what to make of our working relationship. We've only known each other a couple of weeks. And I don't feel like you've welcomed me as part of the team. I don't feel, I don't know what to make of some of your behaviors. And I brought to that moment some anxiety over one, having received this information and not knowing fully what to do with it. Two, feeling like this person needs to be able to set the record straight. Am I even dealing with real information? And if so, what bearing does that have on our working relationship? And three, I just felt a lot of anxiety, a lot of discomfort in the way that we had interacted. We just had never found our footing in our working relationship. So I was very eager. I had had all these mixed emotions roiling underneath of me that I didn't realize I needed to set aside in order to have a more productive encounter in that moment. I saw this statement that this person gave me. Hey, I don't know what to make of the way that you've behaved thus far. As, oh great, this is the opportunity to relieve myself of this anxiety. I get to just say, oh, well, by the way, I... I have this information that somebody said about you and let me just put it out there so that you can refute it or do whatever you need to with it. But that's, that's why I threw up these walls inadvertently. It was my desire to be relieved of that anxiety that caused me to say, Hey, somebody said this about you, which is not what anybody ever wants to hear. And what this person was looking for in that moment was vastly different from what I was looking for. I was looking for an opportunity to relieve myself of the anxiety that I felt. This person was looking for, I don't know that you trust me, you like me, I don't know that I can feel safe with you. I need more solidity in our working relationship than we have thus far. And instead, I threw gasoline on all of that self-doubt or doubt about our relationship or whatever. I just threw fuel on that fire by saying, somebody's gossiping behind you, your back, and this is what they had to say. That mm. to them was extraordinarily hurtful. And honestly, our working relationship never, ever recovered. Mm. I needed to recognize the anxiety that I was feeling in order to be able to set that aside and be able to show up more accurately, more receptively for this other person. Because, yeah, I I missed. It was a swing and a miss, and it was the biggest leadership miss I've ever had. Mm, That's a great example. You know, I appreciate you being willing to share that because it hits on on what I think is the real-life 
situation that we all walk into, which is the moment where I walk into a conversation and I'm anxious about one thing and the other person is anxious about a completely different thing. And I can either respond out of my anxiety and make it worse, which we've all done, or I can be aware of my own anxiety enough to set it aside and read the anxiety that's in the room in the other person mm-hmm. and address that. But I can't do both. I can't be unself-awarely anxious in my own head and have any chance of properly diagnosing the anxiety that the other person brings into the room. Yes. So what a great illustration. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, And I know we'll talk about this later, but, you know, Cuss uses a, what he calls a, a verbatim. And this is an exercise of basically debriefing these leadership encounters And as part of the class that I took where I had to read this book, we actually did uh, verbatims with our classmates. And so we broke up into small groups and each of us got to present a verbatim. And this is the topic that I chose for my verbatim. So I've had some time to process this leadership encounter and really recognize what was going on inside of me that led to such a poor outcome for this leadership moment. So I had it prepared to talk about today because you had announced yet last week that we were going to talk about this book. And I'm like, I have to share this because this is the shining example in my life of what Steve Cuss is trying to get us to do. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, so tell me about, so I have never formally done this example, this idea of a verbatim. And I'll be honest, when I read this book, it was probably my least favorite chapter. I was like, okay, Steve, that sounds excessive. Oh, And so I want to hear no. all about your experience. I am thrilled with the verbatim. I think it encapsulates everything that he's talking about in this book. Because a verbatim literally is just you writing down verbatim, word for word, a leadership encounter. And you're not using names, you're just using initials or whatever. And you're but you're describing accurately what was said on both sides, but more importantly, the internal monologue or the feelings that were associated with that part of the conversation. So mm-hmm. you break up your encounter into various columns that um you know, this is so-and-so said, this is what I said, blah, blah, blah. But then you also have these columns that say, then this is what I was thinking. This is what I was feeling. This is what was going on in my physiology at that time. That my, my heart was racing, or this is what I thought. This is how I interpreted what they said, or kind of all of the different subtext that goes into it. And then when you present it, um, so you also, there's some, there's some like, background information that you share at the very beginning in paragraph form that you know sets the stage it talks about what you were bringing into this moment and the things that you were feeling and you know I didn't get my coffee yet this morning or whatever it is and then you rehearse like you just literally verbatim read through this encounter and then the other participants are there not to solve the problem not to say oh well this is what you should have done but it's much more probing underneath the surface to help you realize what was roiling underneath. Mm. 
And so they're asking probing questions. This, what were you feeling? Why do you think you were feeling that? Or challenging some assumptions. Well, I heard you say that all people ought to do blah, blah, blah. You know, is that true? Do we really, you might feel that way, but you want to take a second look at that or what have you. So I found it to be a really, really good experience. I can imagine, this was just with classmates, but I can imagine in a working team, the power of the verbatim comes over multiple times of doing it. And so as you as a team start to gel and start to have these conversations and start to recognize the ways in which you show up to these leadership encounters, it's I can imagine that you would ultimately be able to do your own verbatim before you even show up to do the verbatim with your team because mm-hmm. you've trained yourself to recognize these things about yourself so that the next time you have a similar leadership encounter, you know what's roiling underneath the surface and what you need to do with it. And so I think just like you were talking about with the rule of life episode and how we need to exercise our souls through meditation and that this is a an act of teaching ourselves how to pay attention and how to meditate. That I think is the same idea with the verbatim. It's mm teaching your brain how to monitor what's going on underneath the surface. And it's doing so in a safe team environment. Yeah, no, and and that makes sense. It's funny that, you know, as you're describing it, I'm thinking to myself, in practical reality, if I had two or three other peers that I got together with for coffee every other week or once a month or whatever, and we just rotated around the circle presenting a verbatim, that would be a life-changing experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think your team dynamics would shift in really, really positive ways. But you've heard a lot from me and my processing of this book. I obviously loved it and recommended it to you. You've picked it up and loved it. What have you gotten out of it? And what makes it such a highly prized book already for you? You know, a lot of things. First of all, for anybody who's an audiobook listener, any Australian narrating an audiobook is a wonderful gift from God. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just always great. English accents, same thing. It's just great when the person sounds different from me. It does help me stay focused a little bit. But uh, it's probably why I like his podcast too. Seriously, though, I do enjoy when somebody's narrating their own book. I find that very helpful. But the first thing that I really found wildly helpful was his simple one word definition of anxiety. And he said, anxiety really is nothing more or less than reactivity. Hmm. That is such a great summary statement of what anxiety is. When I am my most anxious, I am my most reactive. I'm not my most authentic self. I'm not being who I like being. I'm I'm not exemplifying what I like about myself. I'm just responding. And this ability to not be reactive, but to choose response, you know, and I think it was one of the early chapters, he talks about how there is this, yeah, here it is, this Viktor Frankl quote, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In the space 
there is the power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. This idea that we have space between stimulus and response to make a choice is a really powerful idea to me. And this idea of calling anxiety reactivity is very, very helpful. Uh, First of all, because it brings it out of the realm of feelings into the realm of actions in a way that I find helpful to therefore respond to. I can't stop feeling anxious, right? Um, Mm. I I don't know if you've ever tried to stop feeling a feeling, but it doesn't really do much. Um, (laughs) And so giving myself permission to feel whatever I'm feeling, but acknowledging that the actions associated with that feeling coming from a place of reactivity is just really, really helpful. The other thing he said about anxiety that I thought was really great. He said, anxiety is an early warning system that tells you, you are believing you need something that you do not need. Yes. So I believe I need validation from this person in front of me. I believe that I need to be able to fix the problem of the person in front of me. I believe that I need to be able to convince everybody to agree with me. I believe that a meeting ought to end with me being acknowledged to be the person who has the right answer. Mm. I, I genuinely believe a lot of those things. Sure. And a lot of those things are completely out of my control. I cannot guarantee in a meeting that everybody is going to walk out of the meeting thinking that I have the right answer. I cannot be the person who fixes everybody else's problems. And as long as I believe those things, I am in for some serious anxiety because I'm attempting the impossible. I have decided I am only going to be emotionally well under a set of circumstances that I don't have control over. Other people have control over. That's not good. Right. And you're a slave to these outcomes when you don't really have control over making them possible. But even beyond that, the premise itself may not be worth affirming, right? I don't think any of us should come out of every single meeting with everybody thinking that we have the right answers. I happen to believe that same thing very often. So I'm not uh, you know, casting aspersion here, but I ultimately think if I really sat down and thought about it, well, then everybody would just think like me. And I think ultimately that's probably problematic, even though I'm pretty sure I'm right a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. One of the things I appreciate about the why he wrote this book is that it invited me to look in the mirror. And as I looked in the mirror, one of the things that I noticed was that I really want to be a person who fixes the problem and gets everybody on the same page. Hmm. So in my particular organization at my church, I work primarily with leaders at my church. Most of 90% of my time is spent with leaders in the church. And I want every one of those leaders to see me as the person they can go to 
who will fix it, solve it, or deal with it. Whether it is the lead pastor who is speaking to me or one of the other leaders, that's how I want people to see me. Well, that's one of those, I don't remember exactly how you said this, but you said it really well. Some of those are not desirable outcomes. Really? Should I create an organization that depends on me for everything? Right. Is that healthy? Is that good? Is that the most effective option? You know, because I'm always equipping and empowering other leaders, I can hide in the background and pat myself on the back for being very humble because I'm pushing everybody else into the spotlight all the while knowing that I have equipped and empowered those people and it's because I'm awesome that they're able to do what they're doing. And so I can be faux humble and feel very spiritual while all the while genuinely having this semi-invisible savior complex. And Mm. that's unnecessary, unhelpful, and exhausting. (laughs) You're right. Steve Cuss wrote this book in such a way that he invites you. And I think you said it exactly right. It is an invitation, and it's a gentle invitation to look in the mirror. And as a result of that gentle invitation, you were able to see this and say, hmm, I'm not sure that I like what I see here. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I had a similar experience As he said, one of the many suggestions he had was to make a list of the people that you judge. Yes, I have a list. I Right? I started to make a list as well, not because I think it's right to judge these people, but I probably should be aware of the people that I tend to judge. Just like you quoted Victor Frankl, exactly right. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And so when I feel inclined to judge somebody, that is an automatic stimulus. So between stimulus and response, how I act in response to that automatic judgment, there is a space. And in Mm. that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And so by listing the people that I automatically judge, I now empower myself to interrupt that thought and choose my response more wisely, more in line with my values. Mm -hmm. And so some of the people that I know I tend to judge, people who create their own emergencies. Mm. This, I think every single 911 person is tempted to judge people who create their own emergencies. And it is really hard sometimes to feel the compassion necessary to somebody that is really in a tough, tough spot. But I I went on a ride along one time and I was with the officer and the officer was listening to this gal tell a very long, complicated story about how her roommate had like, forged her way onto her cell phone plan and made all these erroneous charges. And it was such a horrible thing. And then all the while she's telling this story, she's constantly telling us that this roommate is a convicted felon. And 
over and over and over, this is a point she really wants us to know. This She's a convicted felon. And the officer ended up saying at one point, well, you know, when you have convicted felons in your life, you have convicted felons in your life. And Deep. it was his automatic judgment, if you will, coming through that said, yeah, you kind of created this situation. You want us to say this person is so bad, so bad, so bad, but you also brought this bad person into your life. And so people who create their own emergencies, it's very, very easy in my line of work to judge somebody like that. And I need to be aware of that. And I need to interrupt between stimulus and response in order to act appropriately. And I could go on with my list, but I don't know that. I, I think the point is made even without me sharing my whole list. Yeah, the other question that he asked, or another question that he asked, that continued this idea of gentle invitation, he said at some point, whose anxiety is making you anxious? Mm. And I had a list. I could go through and mention certain people in, in my private relationships. I could mention certain people in my work relationships that... I get very anxious because I think that they are stressed about something. Their anxiety makes me anxious, and I tend to be reactive because it's in my head. And I had a similar moment just literally today, uh, or yesterday rather. I was at church, and one of the people whose anxiety makes me anxious mentioned something that had happened over the weekend, and... My first response was to imagine a conversation I could have with all the people who were involved that could fix the problem. Because like I said, I want to be the person who fixes the problem and who helps everybody walk out of the room on the same page. Yeah. The situation had nothing to do with me. I wasn't involved in any way. And having made this list these various lists and, and kind of done some journaling about this and listening to his book. And I was able to look this person in, in the eye and say, have you talked to them about that? And then just leave it at that. I, I don't need to mm -hmm. fix this. You just need to have a conversation with them. And if you can't have a conversation with them about it, then I, I don't need to be involved because you're not just, that's just basic step one stuff. If, if you can't get that done, you don't need my help. I mean, there's even, this is basic Bible, Matthew 18 kinds of stuff, right? Like, if you have an issue with another yeah. believer, talk to him about it. Right. And I was grateful for that moment between stimulus and response, because I could, I could literally feel myself going into the imaginative mode of, I can be the savior and fixer of this, and I have to be. Not even I can be, I have to be, and I need to get worked mm -hmm. up about it until I do. And then kind of toning down and thinking, nope, I'm gonna let I'm gonna pass on this one. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm so thrilled that this book was able to have just an immediate effect. You made a leadership choice in light of the skills taught in this book. Yeah, I mean, and he gives kind of these three basic steps to being free from anxiety that mirror very closely. Uh, what we've read in You Are Not Your Brain, which is another book we both really liked. 
Mm -hmm. Very simply, he gives these three steps of notice it, name it, and rest free in Christ, which is very similar to the steps in that book, which are basically, uh, and I'm going to not say this perfectly, but take note of the fact that you are having a deceptive brain message, kind of what this book is calling anxiety, and then call it what it really is, and then divert your brain someplace else. Yeah. And I really appreciated his mantra for this, which he said was, Jesus died so I don't have to fill in the blank. So Mm. Jesus died so I don't have to do it right every time. Jesus died so I don't have to perfect every imperfection that I see. Jesus died so I don't have to perform. Whatever it is for you, for me, Jesus died so we don't really actually have to do what our anxiety is screaming we need to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And a very freeing thought on a very practical level. I don't have to react to what this person is saying to me. I don't have to react to what I perceive this person to need. I don't have to react to my own sense of identity and the things that I believe I need, because some of them I don't actually need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So huge thanks to Steve Cuss for putting out such an amazing book. If you are a leader, uh, if you are preparing for leadership in any capacity, pick up this book, read it, work through it, think through it, look in the mirror. There's a lot to uncover, and I just highly, highly recommend this book. Yes, agreed. Yeah. So let's shift the conversation if we can. I want to hear thoughts from you. I want to know what it is besides this book that you've been thinking about this week. Yeah, sure. So I finished this book, and the next book that I picked up was uh, Miroslav Volf's Exclusion and Embrace. uh, Oh, man, that's on my list. That's on my list. It is absolutely worth the hype. This is a brilliant book. Again, this time on sort of the social implications of the gospel for how we should treat people who are different than we are. And what I love is in the introduction, he explains how he came about to write this book. And in order to understand the situation that led to the book, you have to understand He himself is a Croatian, and this book was written in the, conceived of in the early 90s, written in the middle 90s, right in the middle of the heated Bosnian War. So all of this is going on, and he is emotionally and mentally engaged in this context. And he delivers a lecture that he had titled, I believe, Exclusion and Embrace, And one of the professors who was one of his mentors, Hergen Moltmann, stands up after the lecture as he is talking about the power of the gospel to to lead you to embrace your enemy. 
And Moltmann stands up and says, yes, but can you personally go out and embrace a Chechnik today? A Chechnik being one of the Serbian, Serbian militarists who were fighting those very moments against the Croatian people. And this is Moltmann's response to it. Essentially, can you practically today go out and love your neighbor enough to give him a hug right here, right now, no matter what, right now? And that was such a complicated, difficult, challenging question for Wolf that he ended up writing this 500-page book to work out his theology to a more fully meditated and fully thought out place. And I just love the fact that he was willing to wrestle with it on such a practical level for himself. I think that's amazing. What about you? What are you thinking about? Yeah, I'll, uh, I want to jump in though first on what you had said. It reminds me of Eugene Peterson. As he grew as a writer, he really discovered that what he needed to be doing as a writer was to write heuristically. In other words, write in order to discover hmm. and not in order to teach, not in order to disseminate information, but literally to write in order to discover. And it sounds like you're saying Wolf did that in his book, which makes me want to read it even more. It was already really high on my list, but I have it in print and I can't do any personal print reading during the semesters for seminary, but I took the summer off and I had to decide what was going to make my print reading list for the summer. And it almost did, but it didn't make it. So now I'm like regretting that decision. I really want to read that. I'll tell you what, I got it on Audible and I'm listening to it when I run. And, you know, I, I had said to my wife, well, I've never read it because of this exact problem that you're describing. And I said, I just assume that it is way too complicated for me to listen to. And she's like, no, you can listen to it. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> that is not entirely accurate. <laughs> okay. That's good to know. However, it is doable. It is not the hardest book I've ever listened to, but there are moments where I realize he just said something very complicated and I didn't fully get it. So I would say I'm getting 85%, which is adequate for me. I'll live with that because otherwise it's a get nothing. And 85% of an amazing book is way better than 100% of a useless book, which is what I would be reading otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's good. I will keep that in mind in terms of how I'm going to tackle that book. But my thought for this week- Oh, no, week, I'm sorry. You is... had a thought about Eugene Peterson and the idea of heuristic writing. You can't have another thought. Okay, well, then I'll save it for another week. All right. No, I'm kidding, of course. Tell me your thought. <laughs> um, so this is a kind of a banner week. I never, never have thoughts about a TV show. Ooh. I- I very rarely watch TV. I just don't have time for it. I don't have patience for it, quite honestly. But my family likes to watch TV and they want to watch TV with me. And so sometimes I succumb to a show. And this weekend while we were at the beach house, I succumbed to a show. And it is a brand new series on Netflix called Snowflake Mountain. 
And if you intend to watch this, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. So please feel free to just skip to the fact that we want you to like us on Facebook and comment on all the things that we're talking about. But Snowflake Mountain is a tentative recommendation. I say tentative because it has a lot of language in it and kind of just some language around kind of foul concepts at times. However, that is not the bulk of the show, but it is prevalent enough that it got an MA rating. Aside from that, the content is amazing. And the, I, the premise of the show is to take a bunch of young, early 20s people that have kind of a failure to launch due to entitlement, due to laziness, due to whatever, and take them out into the wilderness with a couple of hosts that teach them survival type skills and how to take care of yourself and how to not have everything go your way. But I thought the very beginning of the show was going to be like, let's make fun of these people who can't get their lives together. Instead, the whole design of the show was fascinating. They made the challenges incremental and appropriate to their ability, but very much pushing them beyond their abilities, but step by step and incrementally and with a lot of carrots, a lot of rewards along the way. And one of the main carrots is that somebody's going to win $50,000 at the end of this. Hmm. The trick is everybody has to be in it together because any contestant that quits, the pot goes down by $5,000. So they've structured the show out of the gate to make it so that they bond as a team and that they support each other. There's a reason to keep everybody around. And at no point do they kick anybody off the show. The only way you leave the show is if you quit. And if you quit, you cost everybody else $5,000 or somebody in the rest of the team $5,000. And then throughout the show, they reward positive behavior. They reward progress that they see in individuals and as the group. And they are very encouraging, but they also really push people and make them take ownership of their lives. Anyway, it was a fantastic show. I loved the way that they just built the psychology around, no, you're here to grow. And because you're here to grow, we're going to push you. We're going to challenge you. We're going to do some things that frustrate you. But we're going to set the whole system up for you to succeed as a group and for you to support one another. And here's where I bring it around. I wonder what it would be like to structure church encounters in the same way. How could we design a retreat or design a class or design a discipleship program around these same ideas that we push people out of their comfort zone, but we design the system in such a way that you are there to support one another from the outset. And you're very invested in everybody else's personal growth because you're doing this together as a team. I really thought the psychology of the show was amazing. And I think that we could learn a lot from it. That's awesome. What a fascinating idea. Yeah. That's great. Well, you know, let's turn the conversation out here. First of all, 
Uh, we just want to ask you guys to keep connected with us, like us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. But we would also love to have you jump over to Reddit and share with us your thoughts on uh, leadership in general, uh, some of the best leadership books that you've read, what you think about the things we were talking about, about managing leadership anxiety, and then what else you've been thinking about this week. We really want to hear from you. What's going on? What are you thinking about? Absolutely. And if you are following us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, you've seen that we posted the Which Josh question. And this week's Which Josh question is, Which Josh had a metal rod put in his chest when he was five? And that is Josh Mm. from Missouri. Yep. When I was born, I was born with uh, a condition called pectus excavatum. Uh, which basically just means that the part of my chest where your sternum is was sunken in really, really low and my ribs were curved too much, like curved inwards. And so if they hadn't fixed it, I never would have been able to develop proper lung size and certainly wouldn't have been running or anything like that. And so the way that they fix it is that they take a metal rod and they put it behind your sternum when you're very, very young and force your ribs to grow closer to straight. And then I think they leave the rod in for like six months and then uh, out it comes. So my chest is still somewhat sunken in, but not near as much as it would have been without a lot of help from amazing doctors. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a painful event. Like that just sounds like so much pressure on your chest for six months. Do you have any living memory of that? Some of my earliest memories are of the process, but that is not one of the things I remember. I don't remember it ever hurting. I did have to like relearn how to not like learn how to breathe, but like, you know, that little breath machine that like tests how deeply you can breathe. I had to use that kind of thing every single day. And fortunately it was sold to me as a game to play. And so I wanted to do it all the time. But so I have some memories of recuperating that way. And I have some really horrible memories of being in the hospital and a host of things that were done wrong. It was, a you know, the early 80s and having a five-year-old as a patient is a very complicated thing. And so it was it was pretty complicated. But that particular thing, no, I do not recall that being an issue. That's crazy. Wow. Well, I'm glad you don't have recollection of the pain, if there even was any. So Yeah, me too. All, All right. right. Well, well, next week <laughs> it is. All right. I can't wait. I am looking forward to getting to talk again. Talk to you then. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. 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 Bye now. <laughs>